bum, slum, slum, gullion, slum, gullion, we've got season two of the slum, gullion, Jeff and Scott still host the slum, gullion, I still don't know what that word means. And welcome to the Slum Gullion, America's only podcast. I'm half your host, Scott. I'm the other half of your host, Jeff. And together we make, I don't know, the world's shittiest Voltron? I'm not really sure. Anyway. Are we lions or no, we we, we drive the emus. There you go. We drive the emus. And the emus form insurance. together to become an ocelot. Ooh. Just Oce- saying the word ocelot is cool. Ocelot, an awful lot. exactly so what are we doing today scott today we are facing the music thanks to jeff and his interesting taste in film he found a movie why don't you tell us how you found it and what you found and maybe why Okay, so I was going down a rabbit hole of YouTube videos for some dumbass reason, and I found a video that was about cults and the media that they produce. And some of it was um, some stuff that, that the Jim Jones cult did. There were some other things that came out. But the big one that struck me as interesting, and you're the research guy, so I'll be cutting back to you in a second, was there was a group called Synanon that Columbia Pictures, with the full assistance of this group, Synanon, made a film. And this film had some big people involved in it. There, Well, at the time, there was Eartha Kitt. There was Chuck Connors. There was music by Neil Hefty. And I'm like, wow, it's a movie with famous people that's based around a cult. I kind of want to watch this. So I said, hey, Scott, I found us a movie for good or ill. So we watched it. Yes, for good or ill. Mostly ill. Now, just to clarify, when the film was made in 1965, Synanon was not exactly a cult. That came later. I was going to say, the movie makes it feel like a cult right off the bat. (laughs) It does. What you see are the seeds of cultum. There is a cult that has been planted, and they are expecting a bumper crop of cult. And they got it. And it went on for quite a few years before imploding in the most horrifying and hilarious way possible. But we'll get to that. The movie basically is kind of a mid-budget a black and white film at 65, it, that's a little late. So they didn't spend a lot of money on it. The actors are, a lot of them are TV actors, but they still have some prominent names from the golden age of Hollywood. Richard Conti is a fairly large part. Edmund O'Brien is the leader, Chuck Dieterich. So it was not exactly a prestige A picture, but you didn't get a lot of those from Columbia anyway, until they were bought by Sony. They were basically the mini major studio. So I immediately recognized the name when Jeff mentioned it. And having grown up in California in the 70s, I was well acquainted with where the story went after the uh, curtain came down. So I did want to do it. I I can't blame Jeff entirely for this. My own curiosity was my own undoing. So let's just deal with it, people. Let's find out what the the state of anti-drug education was in 1965. The movie is called Synanon. It was directed by Richard Quine, who was a um, a child actor, transitioned successfully into adult roles, but found his career grinding to a halt after World War II 
because he served in the Coast Guard. And when he came back, really nobody cared anymore. Tastes were changing. So he got into directing and producing and did pretty well. And then he uh, got into TV, like a lot of directors in that area did. And then he uh, wound up blowing his brains out in the 80s. And uh, God, this is getting off on a really grim note. Yeah, seriously, man. <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't mean to. It's just, let me be frank up front. I've alluded, I've probably even told tales out of school here on the show, that there is a history of addiction in my family. And this movie brought up a lot of really uncomfortable feels and memories. Oh, shit, Scott, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I, it's, one has to cope. I, I won't say this is part of the healing process because it's really not. Uh, this is more of the unnecessary, why are you picking that scab process? But it was illuminating in a lot of ways that we'll get to. So Synanon House took over this abandoned building. I think it had been a factory or something right on the beach in Santa Monica. I've walked by that building numerous times, never knowing what it was, never knowing that it had this history, that it had been the birthplace of a cult. And if you're interested in what Santa Monica looked like in the mid sixties, then this film will not help you very much because really it's it doesn't take advantage of its location very well at all you see a few streets and a couple of bad bars exactly and then the rest of it is just the camera zooming in on somebody's sweaty pores so it's it's not a banquet for the eyes this movie like i was saying to jeff before it's the saddest looking black i mean you know sometimes black and white photography really enhances like in um, george clooney's good night and good luck Yes, that's a crisp and atmospheric use of black and white here. It feels like it was shot in sepia tone. Like instead of developer fluid, when they ran the unprocessed film through the tank, they'd put in, I don't know, red Georgia clay, Vermont maple syrup. I don't know. It's got this weird brownish, reddish, orangey kind of cast to it. And granted, I saw it on YouTube. So who knows? That, that's the thing. When you see a film on YouTube, you don't know where it's been. <laughs> and with this film in particular, I don't want to know where it's been. No, no, no. I, I would not touch this film without, I don't know, rubber gloves inside a pair of oven mitts. And at least two or three shots. Yes, very, okay. very, very unsanitary. Well, let's get into the movie a little bit. And perhaps you'll see what you mean. Our hero has the greatest name of all time. We'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually not. Let's get to that now. I'm not going to be calling him this, and I'll explain my reasons later. But uh, go ahead. What is our hero's name? Honestly, I don't even remember what his <laughs> actual name is. I was calling him Banksy. Banksy. Yeah, I was. Uh, uh, they they or call Xerxes him... or Rambo or dipshit. I mean, there were so many names that came through my head as it went on. The character's name is Zanky Albo. That's right, Zanky Al Zanky. That was what I was laughing at. Yeah, the first time they said his name, I had to pause it because I wasn't sure I'd actually heard that correctly. And then other people called him Zanky. Because the first time we hear it, he and his friend are, are on the Santa Monica Pier, and they are both high as fuck. Where the and hotheads flop in the snow. Exactly. Their diction is not especially crisp. So I, I thought, wait, he, he didn't say Zanky, did he? And then I thought for a while, I thought he said Spanky. And then I just decided I I didn't care anymore. I'm not going to call him Zanky, and you can't make me. So 
Actually, we, actually, before they get to the pier, we open on the beach. And they're surprisingly well-dressed hopheads. I mean, they're both wearing suits, suits that they've been wearing all night and are somewhat the worst for wear, but nonetheless, fairly shark dressers. I mean, certainly more so than the characters in uh, Drugstore or Cowboy. So they're, they're staggering across the sand and a, a jazzy, sort of lazy piano score is playing what sounds oh, like i need to hang on real fast i need to get out of this get this out of the way right now speaking of the score i honestly think neil has to be only knew one tune i know he did the batman theme but the entire score was the fucking odd couple theme well i mean if you look at the batman theme it's that's pretty much it so yeah, it's like yeah it's like i it's like how many notes did he know did he ever <laughs> learn a chord I was just curious. All of the, he uses all of the same notes. I mean, the first time the, 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 some of the music started playing, I'm like, this is the freaking odd couple theme. Oh, yeah. It, Neil Hefty did the odd couple theme. Okay. Yeah. And it's it sounds like the piano line that's playing when they're staggering up onto the pier sounds like, and I'm not kidding because this is in my notes. Now, you're right about you're right about the odd couple, but it also sounds like a minor key version of the Batman theme. It's that yeah. same just yep. plinking note after note, not getting anywhere. So a uh, good call on hiring Neil Hefty. Now, the, the two guys pass Synod on House, where someone inside is explaining how at three months you get what we call the 90-day hump, which I guess is a, I guess is a version of the 90-day fiancé for people who are afraid of commitment. <laughs> but they're not interested in working three months for a one-night stand, our heroes, and they press on. We get to the Santa Monica Pier, one of them collapses on a bench and sweats while the other perches on the back and rhapsodizes about the merry-go-round and how he would ride that thing. If he now, now let's it. be clear here. Let's be clear here. Spanky is the one who's losing it. And his friend Hopper is the one who wants to ride it. Although honestly, I think he wanted to ride more than the merry-go-round. If you know what I mean. And I think you do. Uh, yes. Thank you, Joe Bob. Well, thanks to a convenient medium shot, we can finally see who these guys are, and they're exactly who Jeff said. Banky is a young Alex Cord, who was basically, in my opinion, the first draft of Lee Horsley. Um, and, uh... Oh. You just broke me, Scott. That's beautiful. Thank you. And Hopper is just, is just an annoying New York Method actor, who Alex gives his last quarter to, so he'll go away. And uh, while Young Actors Studio was writing The Carousel, Spanky sensitively portrays heroin withdrawal, which, like diarrhea, is apparently like a storm raging inside you. Uh, meanwhile, back at Synodon, there's an open house where parents can talk to the teachers about how little Bobby's withdrawal symptoms are going. And a couple of squares are chatting about how hopheads can't hide their shifty eyes. By the way, one of the squares is the stiff who played the chief Romulan lackey in the original series episode, Balance of Terror. Oh, <gasps> I knew I recognized him from something. Yeah. Okay, okay. I had to pause for a good minute and a half to think about it, because it's hard to recognize him without that uh, stupid helmet he wore. But uh, he's, <laughs> that beaky nose is unmistakable. And the other square says that there's going to be a speech by the founder, Chuck Diederich, which should mm -hmm. be interesting, because he heard Diederich, quote, might be going to jail over some zoning issue. Yeah. About that. He's going to jail, all right, but maybe not in the movie and definitely not for a zoning infraction. So Dieterich is played in full grumpy old man mode by Emmett O'Brien, and he gets on stage and tells the audience that nobody did 
anything about dope addicts, so he did. Dope uh, fiends. Money was dope fiends. He never used. I, I remember him using the word addict. Um, they were always dope fiends. You're right. Thank you. Um, he <laughs> says he says 140 people who couldn't live without dope are living here, and they're living here without any crutches. We drink coffee and we smoke cigarettes. We drink a hell of a lot of coffee and we smoke a hell of a lot of cigarettes, but and we they don't do. shoot dope. <laughs> until we get cancer from all the coffee and tobacco and they have to put us on a morphine drip in the hospice then we shoot dope but not right now i had to pause the film on that we smoke a lot uh, we drink a lot of coffee and smoke a lot of cigarettes because i could not stop laughing that was the funniest fucking thing to me immediately i'm listening to this i'm going uh so you guys didn't see the surgeon general's report okay that's fine whatever yeah synanon definitely cured addiction all right <laughs> Yeah. No, they didn't cure uh, addiction. They cured uh, fiendishness. They're not dope addicts. They're dope fiends. Their problem is fiendishness. Um, <laughs> so in, instead of dope, uh, Dietrich says, we live on talk. Uh, this is a reference to what was called the Synanon game, which was a form of therapy in which somebody talks about themselves, tries to open up and reveal their inner torment and then they're verbally abused and sometimes physically abused by the rest of the group, including the therapist. We see a little bit of the game in the movie. And while apparently it got worse as time went on oh, in yeah. real life, quite frankly, the game scene itself in the film is kind of disturbing. Oh, it's very disturbing because they are just, they don't it was a, they don't say they don't call people on their bullshit. They stand up sneering and mocking every bad choice and mistake someone has made in their life that brought them to Synanon House. And they are talking and to everyone like laughs. And everybody laughs in a in a cruel, mocking way. Now, in my house, this was called Sunday dinner. It did bring back a lot of fond memories. So Dietrich introduces Betty, who's played by Eartha Kitt, who's the, I don't know, dean of women at Synanon or whatever. All you ever see her do is type and answer the phone. So And bring coffee. I, exactly. So I, I think they might have they might have been boosting her resume a bit. So she smokes and talks about her former life as a swinger and a prostitute and how she was dead when she first walked into Synanon, but her hatred saved her. So I, I guess Synanon worked on the same principle as the Sith Academy. Your hatred will make you strong. After Eartha kills with her 50 monologues for young actresses, we're treated to jazz music by the Synanon Quartet Four husky white guys in horned rim specs. So in addition to curing dope fiends, Synanon is also involved in secretly cloning Dave Brubeck. <laughs> oh, and let's, let's not also forget um, what the, they also survive, not just on um, coffee, not just on cigarettes, but on peanut butter sandwiches. Oh, yeah, the peanut butter is a huge plot point. I, I, I hope we don't have to get into it. But yeah, uh, in fact, there's a big crisis at one point where the kitchen runs out of peanut butter. Uh, it doesn't really go anywhere, but then the whole movie doesn't. So it's 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 in keeping with the theme. So Spanky, still sweaty, staggers into Synanon and introduces himself. I'm a hype. He says to the receptionist, who's played by Barbara Luna, who was Lieutenant Marlena Moreau in the Mirror Mirror episode of Star Trek, the original series. Okay. Another Star Trek veteran. There's there's several in this. She takes a drag in her cigarette 
and basically invites him to haul his needle-tracked ass inside and join the hate and the screaming. So we cut to the living room where Alex, is, he's just, he's sweating and writhing on the couch, clearly just tormented by all the demons in hell, while Richard Conti and Stella Stevens sit there watching his brutal gut-wrenching withdrawal symptoms like two people trying to kill time with one of the lesser episodes of She's the Sheriff. And the party Stella is asked, still going on. I didn't quite know what to think about that, except I guess it's a commonplace thing if you're running a halfway house for dope fiends. Most of the time, there's going to be somebody, you know, sweating and writhing on the couch, I'm assuming. So Stella asks Spanky if he'd like to hear a song to relieve his torment. He sensibly demurs, but she persisted. And she starts singing... Put your little foot, put your little foot, put your little foot right out. And he looks like he'd like to do that very thing through her face. By the way, as annoying as this scene is, it's nothing on how annoying this tune becomes when Hefty decides it's every character's leitmotif and we get to hear it throughout the rest of the movie. Fast, slow, up-tempo, minor key, it's a horrible little ditty, and it's become an ineradicable earworm. So thanks, Neil, you lazy bastard. Couldn't have written something original. <sighs> anyway, time works weirdly in this movie, which I'm fine with because everybody's a dope addict. You know, you know, you get high, you lose time. So I think it's the next day. No, I, I think it might be several days later. I can't remember. Chuck Connors from The Rifleman is sitting on the beach snapping at the other dope fiends for feeling good about being clean for three weeks when he's been clean for five years and he doesn't feel like whistling. Then Richard Conti comes out, pulls rank on Chuck, saying, I shot dope for 17 years. Chuck responds by mentioning that today is the five-year anniversary of his wife's death. She croaked it at the tender age of 20, and Chuck got the news in prison. I haven't personally gone through a 12-step program, but I never realized it involved so much arch one-upmanship. So Alex, so Alex, he wakes up after two days and three fabulous, fun-filled nights on the couch. He's sweaty. He's stinky. He's in the mood for some breakfast pills. But I'm pretty sure Stella Stevens was sitting on the couch watching him the entire time. Yeah, she's got her own creepy vibe going on. But like the Egg McMuffin, they stop uh, serving the breakfast pills after 11. So um, he settles for a cigarette and a peanut butter sandwich in the living room. No, they go to the dining room, which is kind of like a little commissary. And he makes flirty eye contact with Chuck, who looks highly disturbed, deeply confused, and possibly horny. Bum, bum, bum. Oh, yeah. This, this, is a, this is a big bum, bum, bum moment. And it promises a huge reckoning to come that the movie never delivers. I'm just going to spoil it right now. But it does turn out that Chuck was his cellmate in prison. Uh, so suddenly the sexual tension makes sense. Yes. So... Diedrich, Richard Conti, and Eartha Kitt give Alex his indoctrination, which in the Synodon way involves insulting him and insisting he shave off his mustache or he'll never be clean of heroin. Yeah, I do not. I did not understand everyone's. I mean, were people so very anti-facial hair back then? Well, it was 1965. Nobody but hippies and well, not even hippies didn't barely had hippies. Beatniks had beards. Okay. But the mustache, I mean, it's it's a big Western-style mustache that goes back to the corner of his mouth, which makes sense because Alex Cord was a stuntman and an ex-rodeo writer. So the, the mustache fits. But part of it is, I mean, they say, oh, you've got to cut that mop of hair off. 
his hair looks fine. His hair looks perfectly acceptable. It's not long at all, but everybody gets these prison haircuts. Interestingly enough, a few years later, when Synanon was a full cult, they were not bashful about it, women had to shave their heads. Men had to get vasectomies. If you were pregnant, you had to get an abortion. It was all just the cult was exerting control over every element of your life. So I don't think they really care about his mustache. They're just browbeating him and trying to make him conform and obey. Right, right. He's confused. I'm confused. But whatever. Welcome to Synanon. So Chuck takes him to the Synanon barber who shears him like a sheep while a bunch of junkies catcall him and laugh. And it's it's a weird scene. I, then Richard puts him on KP duty. And he and Chuck get into it about their prison history. Turns out Chuck hid some heroin in, in uh, Spanky's cell and he got a year added onto his sentence. Uh, Chuck fears he wants revenge. And I desperately hope he's right. Because so far, this has all been very dull. A little revenge would go a long way, I feel. Alex tries to liven things up by propositioning Stella, who says, thank you. Like he, like he just brought her a refill on her iced tea. <laughs> he, he, see, he sees she doesn't understand and tries to explain it. I'm a great with lover. Such, ah, you beat me to it. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna say, with, that, with wonderful line like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm a great lover. And you're a chick. You smell like a chick. Now, I know it doesn't sound like it, but that's a compliment. Unless it's said to a woman standing next to a hen house, in which case it becomes a bit more ambiguous. But she's not. And then he says, I bet you even taste like a chick. Okay. Then he rubs her lips with his fingers like he's trying to wipe off a big glob of Roquefort dressing, which she finds very erotic. Yeah, I couldn't tell if she was aroused or constipated, honestly. Could be both. Yeah. She might have been playing different levels in the scene much like he did during his um, throes of um, addiction moment. Oh, yeah. Many, he was, many, many levels. He was going for an Oscar, no question. We're, we're saved by the loudspeaker, which calls her and Alex and a bunch of other junkies to a synonym, which is like a nanny, except everyone sits in a circle and mocks Stella's love for her child and piles ritual humiliation on her for having Horde to support her habit. Now, as we said, this is actually true to life. Synonym was based on these shaming sessions where dope fiends made alternately abusive and sarcastic remarks about each other, all in the name of love. But I didn't expect to see it in the movie. So, eh, you know, score one for verisimilitude. They, <laughs> meanwhile, Chuck sulks in the barbershop and Eartha comes down to verbally abuse him about how he doesn't make it with any chicks because of his dead wife. And I, I think she's coming on to him, but Chuck politely declines, explaining that every chick in this place is a whore, while his wife, may her memory be a blessing, well, it was only a junkie and a corpse. So but she, she wasn't a whore, so it's okay. Exactly, exactly. So she is morally superior to all of you people. I think it's a week later now. Alex declares he's kicked the habit and joined the unhooked generation and would really like to bone now, please, Stella. But Stella has to go pick up her son, uh, who's coming for a week-long visit. Then she and Barbara Luna take him to the Santa Monica Pier for hot dogs and Cokes, well, a jazzy arrangement of put your little foot right out contaminates the soundtrack. Then the boy changes into a swimsuit and they run down to the beach where Chuck, resplendent in a oh. really tiny Speedo, picks oh. up picks up the half-naked boy and carries him around in a scene that was interrupted when my phone started shrieking at Amber Alert. Yeah, it was... It, uh... mm -hmm. Now, this is all stuff I brought to it. I found that very creepy. I think the movie thought it was heartwarming and charming. So either the movie failed 
or I've just been exposed to a lot of stuff that makes it impossible for me to enjoy tenderness and whimsy. This is entirely possible. In fact, I think I just solved myself. All right, no more therapy. Yay. So another week goes by and Sello's ex-husband shows up and said, hey, remember when I lent you our kid? You were supposed to return him for a full refund. So I guess the lesson of the film is never loan your child to a junkie. Uh, oh, also don't loan your hedge clippers or your garden weasel to the opium den next door. I learned that the hard way. <laughs> so she goes out to the balcony overlooking the beach and watches her son being led away by his father. And Alex comes out because uh, his, his presence is always so soothing. And she looks at him and seems to think, ah, screw him. I'll make another son. Because she grabs him by the face and says, I want you. And the next thing you know, Alex has a blanket under his arm and they're sneaking off across the darkened beach and into the empty lifeguard tower for some procreating post-prison sex that does not involve Chuck Connors. Thank you, movie. And then they have a, an awkward post-coital conversation about love. Alex thinks he wants she wants him to say he loves her because they just made love. And she seems torn between pity and the urge to laugh in his face. Uh, but then it hits her. He takes her hand and he's he's weirdly smooching the palm. And she realizes that maybe he wants her to love him. But she shrugs it off saying, we just got high. It's the same as using dope, except we used each other. If that's the case, and I realized that even though I never used heroin, I was apparently a huge dope fiend in my 20s. <laughs> Don't tell my wife. So the next morning, I think it's the next. Yeah, no, it's the next morning because they walk across the beach. Alex still has the blanket and they, they, they're they doing the walk of shame. Chuck sees yep. him and he tattles Diederich, who forbids them to see each other, setting up a West Side story like modern take on Romeo and Juliet, but with fewer stag leaps and more horse. So Hopper, Spanky's friend from the first scene, shows up while Alex is taking out the trash. Alex corners Hopper out by the dumpster and demands that he bring him a couple of caps. The next day he returns with Andy Cap and Al Cap, but Alex wanted heroin. So he says he'll try again. He robs a record store, gets caught instantly. That doesn't help. Back at Synodon, Alex decides to burgle his dormitory, but before he can steal from his fellow junkies, he spies one of them, played by Bernie Hamilton, who later became the police captain on Starsky and Hutch. Okay. Another TV face. Bernie's sneaking up to the roof where he digs a bottle of cough syrup out of a downspout and guzzles it. So seeing another victim of addiction struggling with his human frailties, Alex demonstrates surprising empathy and sensitivity. But I'm kidding. He he points and brays like a total <laughs> jackass. And then he blackmails Bernie and demands he bring him more NyQuil. Apparently shaving off his mustache made him evil, which is why my wife won't let me shave off mine. So that was just a taste of evil because he gets worse. He watches Chuck try to convince Stella that the tropical fish in the aquarium are junkies. I'm not really sure what he's talking about. I, and I'm not sure if he's coming on to her or if he's just trying to connect with her or what he's doing. Chuck is a very nebulous character in this. So Alex goes over to the hi-fi and takes off the boring jazz record that's playing. And uh, Alejandro Ray, who was the Playboy casino owner in The Flying Nun... Carlos Ramirez, I think his name was, objects that, hey, he was listening to that. And Alex mocks his Spanish accent. 
honestly, I like this guy a lot better when he was strung out and constantly damp. The acting was a lot better. <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So Bernie goes to Dietrich and confesses, ratting out uh, Alex at the same time. Cut to the trash dumpster where Alex sits topless on the wall waiting for his connection. Chuck says, eh, Dietrich wants to see you. And suddenly the soundtrack coughs up a slow, sexy jazz tune that makes it sound like a stripper is about to appear. Again, more bait and switch. That doesn't happen. Instead, Alex rants about how he's going to leave and takes Stella with him while Chuck begs him to stay. It's an ugly scene, and I have to wonder why I ever bothered to ship these two. I'm over it. I'm over the whole zanky Chuck ship, or chunky, as I believe TMZ called it. I'm over it. Yeah, That's good, can. because it was. It would never have gone well. It, it wouldn't have. It, no, you're right. You're right. It was just, it was just a crazy flight of fancy. So Alex starts screaming, fight me for her, and slapping Chuck. Chuck is like uh, more than a head taller than him. But uh, Chuck, who was a super violent predator in, in prison, is a changed man. He's no longer the animal he was. He's forsworn violence. But he makes an exception in this case, kicks the crap out of Alex, and throws him over the wall onto the street. <laughs> Then, under the shocked looks of Richard Conti and the other very judgmental junkies, Chuck does his own walk of shame back in a synodon house. What a lucky break for this fragile community when Alex staggered in and passed out on the couch for three days. He's really changed their lives. I mean, he's touched everybody in some way. A lot of them bad touches, admittedly. So, Eartha finds Stella packing, and she knows Alex is left. Leaving means got beat up and thrown over the wall. So, she's going to go find him. This is this is clearly a stupid idea, and Eartha fights back the only way she knows how, by monologuing. But remember, remember, Stella loves him. They have to be together. She's going to take care of him. That's what she says. You're right. She does say she's going to take care of him. So, I mean, is, is a junkie caring for a junkie like the blind leading the blind? Well, I, I think she's thinking, well, I don't have my son anymore. I'll take this hophead. Well, you know, it's funny because I'm sure you picked up on it, too. They they hint. It's not exactly subtextual. It's not exactly overt. But they hint around that because she has all this guilt over the son she abandoned for dope, she becomes one of these women who takes in strays, birds with broken wings, and basically pours out her, her maternal instinct on them. I think the movie can back that up. I, I think that is a part of her character. I think it's also a simplification. But then everything they yell at people in this, when they're telling people off, it's really brutal and simplified. And I get why they're doing it, because they say junkies have a supernatural ability to rationalize anything in order to make what they do okay, in order to make stealing okay to get a fix, in order to make lying okay to get a fix, and whatever they have to do. They're world-class rationalizers. So anytime somebody starts saying, well, maybe I do it because of this, it's the opposite of therapy. You think, oh, you're getting at something. That's great. Maybe we're about to have a breakthrough. No, they go, you're just rationalizing yourself. You're just a piece of shit. And that's it. That's as far as the therapy goes. They just tell everybody when they start to open up that they're a piece of shit and catalog all the reasons why they're piece of shits by listing the shitty things they've done. This does not seem like a good therapeutic intervention. <laughs> but... The, the movie is all in on it. So Stella leaves and she checks into the nearest flop house, although she has no money. I don't know how that worked. Meanwhile, along with the zoning problems, the parole board thinks that that their parolees who are living there in Synanon House, dope free, 
clean are somehow either a bad influence or the other dope fiends around them are a bad influence on them. Anyway, they want to, they have to leave. So Chuck, some other guy we didn't really meet, and Carlos Ramirez from The Flying Nun, all are, are abruptly graduated from Synanon and uh, forced to leave to start their new lives, which Richard Conte, cutting to the chase, telling it straight, assures them will be grim and miserable. Meanwhile, Stella takes to hanging out at Zanzibar, which is this, this dive that uh, Spanky was always going on about. And she figures sooner or later, he's got to show up there. Then the next day, Dietrich is indeed off to jail for reasons the film is a little cagey about. And everyone at Synodon feels so bad about it that they all chip in to get him a box of Kleenex. Because that was a thing. He didn't know if there would be Kleenexes in prison. Right. And also they found this very funny. I wasn't sure why they all laughed when he asked that. And I think it's because he was an alcoholic, not a dope fiend. So I guess he never went to prison since, you know, you might spend the night in jail in a drunk tank, but you're not going to get sentenced unless you drive drunk or something. But pretty much everyone else in Synodon has done time. So I don't know. I, I guess that's what, see, here I am. I am rationalizing how confusing this movie is. Well, okay. Short version, uh, Chuck Connors is kicked out. We have Stella Stevens, who's out looking for Spanky. Spanky and Hopper, and I still say Hopper wanted to ride the Spanky, but that's just me. No, uh, no, he did, because he he makes, uh, he comes on to him, he said, uh, treat me like a lady, or something. He, he made some yeah. a remark that I think would have been understood by audiences in 1965 as a sub rosa reference to homosexual oh, desire sure. everything about him screamed it i mean i okay. usually i've surprisingly my gaydar has always been very bad at pre-code you know um mm -hmm. that thing and he just screamed i love you i want you let me get you high so i can do you okay all right good because i i was wondering about that uh thank you for confirming it of course, shorter my, my short thing. Every single character in this film was creepy as fuck. Oh, absolutely! Every single character is creepy as fuck. But anyway, they're all off. Ostensibly, doing their... I, the creepiest people ostensibly are are the humanitarians who are trying to help these people. Oh man, yeah, are they, that, that abusive and vile people. Stella Stevens finds Spanky, and he's got a place next door so they can be alone. And oh, oh, oh Hopper, by the, the way, friend is. By, by the way, when we see uh, Spanky in the scene, and it's more obvious when they get back to his SRO hotel, he's growing his mustache back. Beware. Beware. That's right. And Hopper, his buddy, was not very happy to see Stella Stevens or to or to watch them go. But they go to do their thing. And a scene that genuinely surprised me, their scene was him shooting up. Yeah, yeah. He's cooking up a cap of heroin on a spoon over a candle in this shabby furnished room. Personally, I, I, I'd never cook for a girl on a first date. I take her to a nice restaurant and, and you know, let her order off the a la carte smack menu. So... <laughs> The movie at this point does not shy from. I mean, I mean, granted, they, you know, the the man with the golden arm got there earlier. It's not the first time we've seen this in a movie, but it is unblinking as it watches him load up his works while singing, "Put your little arm, put your little arm, put your little arm right out," which is pretty on the nose for a song about feet. 
And Stella Stevens is looking scared by this whole thing. He's asking her if she wants some. It's like, you go first. And he takes it and he starts just going nuts and doing some amazing, amazing community theater acting. <laughs> um, truly, truly phenomenal community theater performance of, 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 of the drug hitting him. And while this is going on, our friend Chuck Connors, who has just been walking the streets, finds Hopper in the bar and says, I need you to take me to Spanky. And Hopper's thinking, ooh, 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 maybe I can stop them from doing it. Takes Chuck Connors over to the room, and what do they find? Uh, they find that uh, Alex is dead. I've been waiting for this moment because he's been clean for, I don't know how long he's been at Synodon before he almost brought the whole place crashing down, but long enough to have detoxed to a considerable degree. And this is the exact same thing that happened to Sid Vicious. He was in jail, mm -hmm. detoxed. When he got out, he unthinkingly shot his normal dose, and it instantly killed him. Well, live and learn, although not in this case. Chuck drags Stella out, and she's still saying she wants to stay with Alex. She wants to take care of him. The dead thing doesn't seem to be sinking in. And, and Chuck says, you, you have to go back to Synanon. But she's a small business owner now and turned her first trick last night to pay, pay her rent. Um, oh, speaking of that, speaking of that, okay, one minute, you know, she's she's all upset about what's going on. And then all of a sudden she's angry saying, you killed him, you killed him, you killed him. And then she's like, hey, uh, I did a trick. You want to be my trick? You got 10 bucks? Ah, you don't even have 10 bucks. She, go, she has this huge emotional arc and even though it looked like or supposedly she didn't take any smack it sure seemed like it in her performance in that scene well the interesting thing about that and i would love to know what sort of preparation the actors did because that is kind of similar to the few ex-junkies i knew in new york where they were so used to not having control of their emotions that they could be really volatile and turn on a dime, and you go, what are you mad about? And they would just go, I don't know. They were used to dope suppressing their emotions, you know, just keeping everything kind of, you know, in a low, pleasant, euphoric, even keel. Then when they don't have it, you know, the soundtrack in Fantasia, how it talks and kind of, where most people's emotions would look like a straight line, this looks like the soundtrack in Fantasia. It's all over the place. It's very jagged. I actually sort of bought that, and she has a point. When she said, you killed him. No, she, he didn't put the needle in his arm, but he did basically throw him out of Synanon. Literally True. throw him out of Synanon. So, throw him over Synanon. Yeah, exactly. So I think she has a point. Now, this next scene, this is about the most of Santa Monica, the downtown area we get to see. Uh, she walks, the stalking scene. Yeah, she she's walking down a dark street past some neon lights. Chuck is following her from about a half block behind. She walks off toward Palisades Park. Oh, real fast. While she's off walking, um, once they leave the hotel, we never see Hopper again. And we don't know if anybody called the cops. So Lord only knows what Hopper's doing to that body. Just so no. oh, I didn't even no. I didn't even think about Hopper. Hopper was out of sight, out of mind until this moment. Thanks very much. I'm just here to help. So we have the stalking <laughs> scene. She walks through Palisades Park. And now kind of a, I guess it was kind of a, kind of a funky version of Put Your Little Foot. Hits the soundtrack to accompany her poor decision making. So you think nothing good is going to come of this, but she heads back to Synanon. 
arriving during a group sing-along to We're Poor Little Lambs Who Have Lost Our Way. And Which she, also sounded like the odd couple theme to me for some reason. <laughs> so, Neil Hefty knew three notes. So, <laughs> they, uh, so she kind of stands there and sort of, you know, mouths the words. I mean, it's, it's hard to really belt a full-throated, enthusiastic version of her poor little lambs have lost her way. It's not that kind of song. Anyway, she's there standing next to Richard Conti, who kind of looks at her and gives her a little smile. And you know that pretty soon he'll be tearing her a new asshole in front of a bunch of other people. But anyway, for the moment, it's a, it's not a happy ending, but it does make a hard-hitting, realistic point to the audience that, that once you take a bunch of dope fiends and clean them up, they have a chance, a slim chance, to live a normal life. But it won't be easy. They'll never again feel those highs they were addicted to. And their karaoke will always be depressing. And then we have the the final crawl, if you will. You didn't happen to write that down, did you, Scott, Mr. Notetaker? I, I didn't because some of it was bullshit. I knew for a fact it was bullshit. Oh, yeah. But basically, the end crawl says he did this amount of time for the zoning and everybody was happy that they're doing good work. And Columbia Pictures was especially thankful for Synanon for allowing them to tell this courageous story in the place where it all began. Right. Okay, I just called it up on the screen. Uh, It says Chuck Dieterich spent 25 days in jail for violating a local zoning ordinance. Seven parolees living drug-free in Synanon were ordered out by the authorities out on the streets. But Chuck returned to build Synanon into a national movement. Today, there are hundreds of people working and growing with Synanon, living because of Synanon. Columbia Pictures is grateful to Synanon for the opportunity to film this picture where it all began and to say the word Synanon a whole bunch of times. As they say on Twitter... That tweet did not age well. (laughs) And we'll be right back after this message. This is your brain. And this is heroin. This is what happens to your brain after snorting heroin. And this is what your body goes through. Wait. It's not over yet. This is what your family goes through. Your friends future. Any questions? And we are back. Anyway, what the fuck were we were we just talking about? We were talking about the 1965 huh? Synanon. Oh, that's right. That's right. So yeah, here's the thing about about this movie, at, le- at least for me. It felt like a weird horror film written and directed by Ed Wood. Yeah. Okay. Please, please elaborate on that. I'm very interested in hearing how uh, how that. Works. Okay. 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 Oops. Sorry. The whole movie was genuinely creepy for me. Okay. Everything about the film was creepy. I mean, I thought the all the characters were assholes. The whole game sequence was amazingly disturbing. Um, at least to me. You know, even the heroin scene, I was kind of shocked as I put off by how far it went. Yeah. 
And then the death and, you know, Chuck Connors stalking and the weirdness over Hopper's does he or does he not want Banksy? It was just everything about the film just genuinely like put me off in a weird way. But it was so fucking stupid. (laughs) The dialogue, some of the dialogue was absolutely horrible hey you know i'm a good lover fuck you right or the acting i mean all anybody who was in the throes of any sort of drug it was just so so over the fucking top i was like like i said i mean it was disturbing but it was done so badly (laughs) yeah i i wondered about that too because it was definitely a fashion to overact your ass off if you were playing a junkie or or really any sort of addict, people who play drugs do it, too, when they're in the receiving hospital with the DTs, because right? there's always that. Mm-hmm. Or for and, me, for me, real fast for me, stoner movies. No. I fucking hate stoner movies. Stoner movies always play as stoners as fucking morons. Sorry, personal preference. Everyone knows how I feel about that. Go on, Scott. Sorry. There was one movie where you mentioned a movie where you liked it because they, it featured a smart stoner. Do you remember what it was? Oh, oh, well, oh, first Cabin in the Woods. Okay. I did like Cabin in the Woods, but I, that, I can't remember if that was the one or not, because I know we had that car. I think it was Cabin in the Woods. I remember liking that guy. Okay. And, and I liked it just because that's a reversal of expectation. You know, the more you can do that, the more interesting you can make it. There are two competing impulses that I think drive that. And one of them is just they want to make it dramatic and theatrical. And this is a chance for an actor to cut loose, which you don't get to do th- that often in film because, you know, you right. got to tone down your performance with the camera. Also, they were making anti-drug films in the 19-teens. I mean, this is a long tradition going back to actually there's two competing <laughs> impulses there, too, because in the teens and the 20s, they had these alarmist exploitation films decrying drug use opium back then you know marijuana well, that's cocaine, right reefer, all that. reefer madness reefer madness fiends exactly those are all good examples of it but at the same time there were also drug culture jokes in those movies if you go back to um again i think it's made in 1916 19 something douglas fairbanks movie called the mystery of the leaping fish okay where he plays he plays a hopped up private detective called coke any day Oh my and, God. Yeah. And he's he snorts bushels of the stuff. And that was not entirely uncommon in the pre-code era. In 1931, I think it was, whenever Chaplin City Lights came out. There's a cocaine joke in that when he's in prison and he asks someone to pass him the salt, but they're using the salt shakers in the prison commissary to smuggle cocaine. Or oh or as, as they call it in the film, because they don't say cocaine, they call it nose candy. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, which is almost worse, in my opinion. You think there's some sort of joke with with uh, Zanky Arlo, whatever the fuck his name is? Is that like an anagram for I'm a bad actor or I'm a meth head or something like that? I, the is there a joke be- there or is that just a screenwriter just typing randomly on his keyboard and going, oh, there we go. We have a name. I thought for the, for the longest time in the movie, I thought his name was Zanky Elbow. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I didn't know what his name was because everybody said it different. It seemed like that's why I just started calling it him Banksy because I had no fucking clue what his name actually right. was. Then when they showed in the end credits, I legitimately was like, "That was his name." Zanky Albo? How is that better than any of the bullshit I came up with? <laughs> exactly. Come on. I mean, my suspension of disbelief is pretty strong, but that broke it. The thing here, because it's a grim story about the tragedy of drug addiction, of course, they're going to play up withdrawal symptoms. They're going to play up the total irresponsibility of addicts and how they connive and cheat and steal and backstab and blah, blah, blah. Films like this, they're sort of like after school specials. Sort of. The acting varied wildly. There was a lot of TV talent in this. And they were, for the most part, inoffensive. You know, they did their bit. They hit their marks. They said their lines. Um, I mean, Eartha Eartha Kitt was perfectly passable. Eartha Kitt was perfectly passable. And what was interesting was she toned down that nasal quality she (laughs) would sometimes use. You you can tell from this movie that 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 was put on. Because she just speaks in a perfectly normal tone of voice. Stella Stevens, surprisingly, was okay. I was fine with her. Until the end, honestly, when she did her mm. after after Banksy died, that whole her whole turn in the last yeah. like five minutes really, at least to me, just came across as ew. Yeah, it, it didn't work. I, I blame the writers and the director a little bit for that because that moment I, was I not agree given. With you. Yeah, she was not given much time to breathe and for her character to to change like that. It was just an instant pivot. I will say the stuff concerning her son, that wasn't bad acting wise. I mean, the way she was dealing with that. I actually did. I agree with you in that whole sequence. Yes. And usually when she acts, it just seems like uh, I make make a huge generalization here. Not like I'm a Stella Stevens fan and have seen all of her work, but usually she's just there. She takes up some space. She says her line. She's fine. She looks pretty. I would never think of her as someone. Oh, yes, we got a. It's a, it's a grim drama of, of a human despair. We must get the best. Call Stella. Um, but she was a believable object of contention between Chuck Connors and Spanky. So I thought she was fine, yeah, except for that moment you mentioned. Spanky was very low key, but that was in keeping with someone who's basically been hollowed out. Mm-hmm. So I didn't mind that. Richard Conti was fine. Richard Conti, actually, I believed as a guy, <laughs> as a middle-aged man who had, who had shot dope for 17 years. Because even when he was young, Richard Conti was a, a rough-looking actor. He looked like he came right off the lathe. Nobody sanded him at all. He was just, there you go, happy birthday. So I could see him as like, sort of like an ex-jazz musician or a guy who you know, owned a club or something. Because Richard Conti also looks like a guy who's connected. Um, uh, Edmund O'Brien was Edmund O'Brien. I mean, if, if you don't like him, you're going to hate him in this. If you if you enjoyed him and all the stuff he was in for 40 years before this, you'll think he's fine. But he definitely I mean, he definitely does not. If, if this is supposed to be a realistic portrayal of, of the act, what was the guy's name? What's 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 the guy's name again? Chuck Diederich. Chuck Diederich. If that was like a quote unquote realistic portrayal of Chuck Diederich, Chuck Diederich was a fucking asshole. <laughs> Right, which is interesting because Chuck Diederich is one of the credited writers. I, l- let me take that back. Two guys are credited with the screenplay. He's credited for the idea. Right. But that implies he has he had some input, even though even if he wasn't a producer. So the fact that he was okay with this loud, boorish, verbally abusive jerk who was bearing his name, then just imagine how much worse he probably was in real life. 
Like, oh, I come it off just, looking pretty good in this. That No, that's what I was thinking. I was like, after watching the game sequence in the movie, all I could think of was, oh, my God, in real life, this must have been terrifying. Yeah, because, again, I'm sure they toned it down for the film, considering yeah, it was 1965. But another interesting thing is that the game continues outside the Putin, I'm sorry, the Synanons. I mean, Chuck does it to Zanke. Zanke does it. She does it to him. It's just like a way of life, you know, just verbally abusing anyone you think is trying to rationalize anything. Must have made it a little hard when they got on the outside. But uh, then again, after a certain point, dun, 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 nobody got out. It ceased to be drug rehabilitation and just became a cult. And you can definitely see the seeds in this film. Again, I don't think that's what they wanted to show, because I think, they'll, see, our thing works. But seriously, watching this film, you can see the cult is right there. You can see it. I'm mad that we never got to see anybody put a snake in a mailbox. Right. Well, that didn't happen to the 70s. I don't care. I know. I know. Should have been a flash forward. Come on. <laughs> Come on, Columbia. Don't you have any clairvoyance on your writing staff? Folks, just, you, you want you want a fun you, you want you want a fun read. Seriously, look just look up, watch the movie because it's. I mean, if you want to watch the movie, watch the movie. Or if, if we've done enough for you, look up Synanon and see what they turned into. Because oh boy, just to explain the the uh, snake in a mailbox reference, this is the thing snake that in I a mailbox. <laughs> I am tired of these motherfucking snakes in my motherfucking <laughs> mailbox. <laughs> When I was a kid in the 70s, this was really what brought home the whole Synanon story for me, because I was not a huge consumer of uh, news. I would go straight to the comic page in the L.A. Times, and that was pretty much it. But you couldn't avoid this story. There was an attorney who was trying to expose Synanon. He, I believe he represented several people who were trying to get clear of it and who had been beaten up or in other ways abused or retaliated against by the cult. Because, they, they, you know, there was a strict code of omerta. It was like the mafia. You did not leave Synanon by that point, which was hinted uh, shortly after this movie was made when Dietrich changed the whole foundation of the Synanon approach. Didn't get rid of the abuse. That, that was still there. But he decided that drug addicts, unlike alcoholics, which is what he was, could never be cured. They always had to live in a therapeutic environment once they got clean, which is basically just a way of saying, you're you're going to continue to be my slave and follower and you're going to give me all your money. And I mean, they bought compounds and they they lived in enclosed private little enclaves. The only time it seemed that they, they interacted with the, op, the outside world was when they would go out and, you know, try to kill somebody for Chuck. Every time a government official, a municipal, county, state, feds, whatever, tried to uh, look into Synanon, they were slapped with lawsuits. They were subjected to abusive phone calls and poison pen letters and all sorts of threats. These are all things that basically inspired, I think, Scientology. I was about to say it. Thank you for saying it. They'll come after you and not me. Exactly. The <laughs> um, government officials had sort of became useless and they took a hands-off approach once Diedrich did something that also inspired Scientology. He said, fuck it, we're a church now. It became the Church of Synanon, which 
Of course, that's how Scientology evaded a lot of government scrutiny by declaring themselves a church later on. But Diederich was a trailblazer in this respect. But this one attorney who was in the San Francisco Bay Area and was representing a lot of ex-Synodon clients became a target to Dietrich's acolytes. D. rattled a rattlesnake, stuck it in the guy's mailbox. He got bit. He wound up in the hospital. It was touch and go. He could have died. But he survived, and I think the two guys went to jail for attempted murder. Dietrich was implicated and convicted of attempted murder. But his lawyer got him out of any jail time by saying, well, he's so sick, he'd die in jail. So what? It's a good place for it. But but he, he got out scot-free. There was no justice for Chuck. Not not in the justice for Barb way. I mean, in a bad way. Right. So right. it's weird to see this film. And I thought it was going to be this sort of earnest hagiography of, of a visionary who dedicated himself to helping, you know, the most despised and wretched amongst us. Uh, but no, everybody in it is a boorish, abusive loudmouth. And, you know, I, I, I would really have to think long and hard about which was worse just sitting here on this bench on the Santa Monica Pier going through withdrawals or getting involved with those assholes at Synodon House. Yeah, yeah, it was it, I mean it's it, it, this is this is one of those weird movies that like I'm glad I watched it but damn, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, it's it's a weird propaganda piece because you know it's supposed to be touting Synanon as this great thing. Like I said, even with the Columbia's crawl at the end, but in no way, shape, or form do these people come across as good. I guess the film is supposed to be saying, you know what, the dope fiends are worse. These guys are assholes, but these guys are on dope, so they're worse. Maybe that was the point because the 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 film the film seems to lack one. Otherwise, I don't know what the point was. I mean, I was hoping to see somebody, was I hoping for this? I don't know. Maybe I was just expecting this. To see a character, reluctant, someone who's given up on themselves, doesn't think they deserve help, doesn't think help is possible, thinks they're just, you know, a waste of skin and should die in a gutter and probably will, reluctantly go through these steps, maybe backslide a few times, but ultimately, though it's difficult come to some sort of resolution and instead it was this sort of snake in the garden of eden plot where zanke who's just just another junkie the whole building is full of them comes in but this guy doesn't get with the program he starts preying on people's weaknesses he introduces a discordant note into every interaction and ruins a bunch of people's lives and then dies stupidly uh, what am I supposed to get out of this? What am I? What is it supposed to teach me? I mean, I think that I, drugs I, are I bad. Think, I, I I think though they were trying to go for a redemptive story because remember, I mean, Stella at the end does go back to Synanon and she seems accepted, and you know she seems like she's going to be able to get better, and even Eartha Kit was smiling at her, and she'll be out on the street begging for quarters to help Chuck in no time. Mm, yeah, I, I think. I, <laughs> I don't know. I honestly don't know. It was, you know what it was? It was just, it, it was a, it was a melodrama with strangely low blood pressure. <laughs> well you know put, I mean. Scott. Well put. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. So. All right. Fascinating. Irritating. irritating. <laughs> <laughs> 
we need to put this puppy to bed. I'll go first. All right. My, my fascinating thing, and this is just me, this is entirely just me, is I was really fascinated by the relationship between Banksy and Hopper. Yes, yes. I, I really think. wanted to know more about those two. How long had they been together? How long had Hopper had his unrequited love for Banksy? You know, I mean, I just, you know, they, they, say they show up together. You know, Banksy's being irritating with the guy right off the bat. Like we said in the beginning, he disappears for 20 minutes, shows back up. Banksy exerts his authority again, being the dominant of, of the, of the uh, duo and sending him out for drugs and blah, blah, blah. This time, like, I really had kind of wanted to see a movie about those two. I mean, th there could have been a real, this is a bad example because it's a much better movie, but there could have been a nice little Requiem for a Dream vibe with those two. Mm. So Requiem for a Dream, but with a gay couple. That, yeah, you know, okay. I mean, it, 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 it could have gone that way, or even if they weren't, or even if they weren't a couple, like I said, even if it was unrequited and Banksy was just, you know, using, yeah, I know you like me, and if you, you know, get me drugs, I'll let you flick my nipple once or twice or something like that. There was just something about their relationship that, uh, you know, that I found, and I was like, I want to see this movie. <laughs> You're right. Well, when those two were on screen, the film had a lot more energy. I will say that. And the guy who played Hopper, who I don't remember his name, but I know he's been around for because I know I recognize him for something. And I'm pretty sure he wound up being a director before he passed. Uh, yes. Oh, what is his name? It was Richard. Richard Evans was his name. Okay. All right. So I, I recognized him. I recognized both him and Banksy as soon as I saw them. Banksy, I recognized more, but I was like, I know this dude. I know this dude. And I did what little research I usually do. And I think it, towards the end, he was a director. And I'm like, okay, I'm glad the guy had a long career. But I mean, he, he, he gave, I think, one of the more interesting performances in the film. He did, especially when you mentioned the gay angle. I actually went back last night and looked at their scenes. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong at all. I'm a little embarrassed I didn't pick up on it. It's not there in Bargain Basement Lee Horsley's performance, but it's definitely there in Richard Evans' performance. He's 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 trying desperately to be charming to Spanky and to be interesting, and he's looking at him sort of longingly at times yes yes especially even even in that first scene when he wants the quarter and just the way he puts his arm on banksy's shoulders mm -hmm. so, uh, on one point i'm like oh come on come on J just admit it you'll love him he's an abusive dude there was a more interesting film there i think there was because even though he doesn't dress this way spanky played by a, an actor who was a who was a stuntman who was a rodeo cowboy i mean he's, he has that sort of you know western vibe about him even though he's wearing a suit the whole time the second time i watched their scenes there was this sort of kind of midnight cowboy feel because even though hopper is looking longingly at him there's nothing in his eyes except just himself he's just looking inwardly the whole time um, mm -hmm. and the only time he really looks at hopper is when he wants something either yep. for him to just go away here take the quarter please go away or get me drugs, do that. Or even when they're sitting in the in the bar, uh, toward the end. And it would have been nice if some of this stuff had come out earlier. But toward the end, when they're when they're at Zanzibar, we find out that Hopper basically got out of the record store robbery beef because his dad is wealthy and prominent. So I'm thinking, okay, here's Spanky, who's who basically his his whole resume is he sold ties door to door. 
Um, he did a couple other menial, menial jobs. He never stuck with any of them. He's flotsam and jetsam. So he hooks up with this rich kid who's also got a yen for the spike. I, I feel like sex had, had to come into that relationship at some point. He had to give Hopper something occasionally to keep him there. Spanky says, says at one point, I, you know, I'm your best friend. And they're like, really? Yes. I, haven't seen you, I haven't seen you do more than tolerate him. But he becomes his best friend when he needs something, which is very junky behavior. The, mm -hmm. And their behavior, their patterns behavior is fairly accurately reflected in the movie, which I guess is, of course, why it doesn't have a happy ending. But I still felt like the ending should have made sense and I should have gotten something out of the film. It, it felt more like I was I just looked at it. I didn't really get involved in the film. I just watched it. It just passed in front of me. I was like, oh, OK. I mean, the oh, I, I agree with you. The only time again, the only time I was actually interested in the film was the Hopper and Banksy scenes there. And it was Hopper Hopper's performance and everything that he was doing. It just drew me in. I'm like, there is a story here that we're not getting that we should be getting. That would be better than the story we are getting. Right. But of course, if if they were going to tell that story, that probably wouldn't have happened until the 70s. Uh, indeed, indeed. And real fast, my irritating thing, Neil Hefty's music. I fucking hate the odd couple theme now. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Taking drugs. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, man. Wandering the streets while being stalked by a deranged Chuck Connors. Dun, 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 dun. On May 14th, Synanon asked Spanky to leave. <laughs> I mean, the music drew me out more than anything else. Yeah. Because that music did not fit that film at all. <clears throat> no, it did not. It that, did no, not. no, 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 no. I mean, the, the 101 versions of Put Your Little <clears throat> Foot Right Out. That all uh, sound like the Odd Couple theme. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now we know the Odd Couple theme sounds like Put Your Foot Right Out. Let's be honest about who ripped off who here. Point taken, point taken. Okay, so so you're fascinating, irritating. All right. Uh, fascinating, and again, this is one of those sort of bird's eye views that I sometimes take when the movie itself doesn't grab me. It struck me that this was the last gasp of the low to mid-budget problem picture, which was a staple of, well, both major studios looking for a prestige picture and sleazy fly-by-night exploitation producers looking for a quick buck from the horny and the curious. And that's been the case since really the dawn of film. I mean, from, I think it was 1916's Race Suicide and Where Are My Children? They were both about how birth control and abortion were decimating the white race. Stop right. it with that. To all those hilarious anti-marijuana films in the 30s to um, classy A pictures about anti-Semitism in the post-war era, like... Um, Gentleman's Agreement or Crossfire, to all the juvenile delinquent pictures in the 50s, to the 60s, where films finally began grappling with racism and, as in this case, the emerging drug culture, even though all these 60s junkies talk like 50s beatniks. I was waiting for somebody to snap instead of clap. I was waiting for the snapping, not going to lie. Yeah, because as you, you said, know, the, the, you, know, you know, Hopper snapped. Hopper did not clap. He snapped. Yeah, exactly. I'm just sunglasses in, in a dark bar. You're just waiting for those fingers and thumbs to, to do their thing. And somebody so, playing the bongos. Yeah, I mean, yeah. 
Somebody playing the bong. Was there somebody playing the bongos in Synanon House? Uh, no, no, because I, I don't think there was a bongo in the jazz band and the jazz combo. There may have been, but you're I don't right. remember bongos. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, irritating. Um, everyone talks like a 50s beatnik. I mean, <laughs> yeah. As we all know, slang ages like milk. Still, it can be evocative of a time and place. It could, it can be expressive. It can even sometimes be poetic, except when filtered through a middle-aged screenwriter and a bunch of TV actors. Then it's just embarrassing. I'm looking at you hippies from Star Trek: The Original Series. And now to Eden. Yeah. So those are the two words I would like when I'm quoted on the Synanon poster. <laughs> but put an exclamation point after each word. Tedious! Scott Clevenger. And I have nothing more to say. <laughs> hey, well, you started this episode. You play us out. <clears throat> All right. Folks, if you hung around this long, thank you. Thanks for spending another weird time with us i'm sure there's more weirdness coming up that jeff will i i don't really know what jeff's going to find what he's going to bring but it's always it's always a thing it's always a thing so and listen for me on listen for me on the new futurama <laughs> i couldn't even finish that with a straight face justice for bender Synanon is a real corporation. Its business is junkies. Chuck Dietrich is the ex-drunk who dreamed it up and fights to keep it from becoming a nightmare. Get out of that car and shut up. Stand over there. Put your hands against the wall. Get in that cell and stay there. But nobody tells me what to do. Ben, the ex-con with the killer's fist tensed so tight for a fix they bleed. Look, Betty, I don't make scenes with chicks because I've got other things on my mind. Joni, doll face with a deadly, expensive appetite. What are you, my nurse? No, just another dope fame. Zanky, the hip hophead, up from the gutter to grab anything he could get. You are a liar. You're a chick. You smell like a chick. You act like a chick. I bet you... Tastes like a chick. Reed, the guy who knows every trick an addict can pull. He used them all himself. Your husband doesn't make enough money to support both your habits, you and your boyfriend. So you go into business. What kind of business, Joni? Then one day, a friend of your husband's is a client of yours. No, I didn't, okay? I didn't, I didn't! Betty bought her kicks the hard way, two bucks at a time. I was what they call a swinger. I did nothing but get high and sold myself to pay for it.
come, Zanke? Yes. I need him. You need him like you need a fix. I want you to stay. You want me to stay so you can get next to Joni. <laughs> Big brother. Who's dying to get her in the sack. Thank <laughs> you. 